So we are back. Did you all maybe get uh, an email with your SPP? Did you get it? Okay. So no. Some of you are like, no, I did not. I have no. I didn't send it. What I have is I have a TA who sends it back for me, and and we record your grades. So if you haven't gotten it, who has gotten it? Just raise. Okay. What? Okay. Who hasn't gotten it? That, that, that might be helpful. Okay, that. Oh, no. well, does it have your email attached? Does it have an email attachment for you that has the SPP in it? No, there's just the grade, right? Yeah, you should get a, an email from like. I don't know what the, well, I think I said abner or hchow.tmcgrades at gmail.com or something like that. You should get an email from that address with an attachment of your original SPP. Does that make sense? And I'll have my comments in there. You haven't gotten that back yet. It's not, it's not, it's not like terrible, okay? Huh? Oh, yeah. No, 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 no. Yeah, you have, it's, uh, you'll get it eventually. We're just having a slow start in the Bible office. It's just because a bazillion things have to happen before they get to that. Because I always say, oh, it's okay. You know, we're not going to get to another SPP for a year anyway. So, <laughs> it's, I mean, we're we're take, we're going so slow. And in minor prophets, we're so we're so behind. I'm already supposed to be like two minor prophets ahead. I'm still on the first one, and I almost I almost cleared. I was so close. I was like, we're oh. I had one verse left. It was ridiculous. And I got rejected by time. So and so so we'll cover that one verse and maybe that will take the whole period next. I hope not for a lot of reasons. But in 2 Samuel we're right off the beaten track and that's okay cuz we're not really behind in this class. We're just off the schedule that I give Wask. So, I mean, and they don't even know I'm off schedule. Well, the goal for today is hopefully to finish this little bit we have left of the background and then to get into um, the text to finally start the book of 2 Samuel. And what a glorious, well, dark, actually very dark, very, 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 very dark beginning it is. But it's, 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 incredible to see what goes on here and how God has had victory. I think I did say, right, that your SPP is due today, correct? Good, because we may cover it. Um, maybe. <laughs> maybe you'll be like, but, oh no. <laughs> like, ah, rejected by the clock. The clock always wins over everything. So, well, let's begin with the word of prayer, shall we? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your glory as it is displayed in the King and in our desperate need for this mediator and our desperate need for a sovereign to come back and restore the order that has been lost when a man, Adam, was dethroned. And Lord, how we long for the one who can wield a covenant, a covenant that pulls together cosmic and national and international elements to to exhibit a control over the chaos and a restoration of what is right, a transition and a transformation from curse to blessing. May our hearts, 
love those kinds of things and, and extol you because of those kind of victories that are found alone in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we learn about what he will do, and as we prepare and see the depth and the background that he will fulfill later, as we are immersed in those details, help our minds to be saturated with the theology and help us to love the God who created these ideas and this storyline and to embrace the drama and the grandeur and the tension and the, and the delay and all that is encompassed in your work of redemption. So now let this class be something that honors you. Let it be an act of worship. Help the words and the thoughts and the exposition of the text be something that brings glory and honor to what you have accomplished. Make these moments eternal, O God, at any expense. Give us the strength to be good listeners and learners as we come before your word now. Make it an edifying and joyful experience. In your name we pray. Amen. Some thoughts. <clears throat> well, first, I just, I'm not going to review everything I said last time, otherwise we will definitely get nowhere. But I will kind of hit some landmarks. And really, the reason, and I didn't, I don't know if I really emphasized this as much last time, but I will emphasize it this time. The reason that we're going through the background, that we're tracing the story of God, and, as, and how he's shaping this one kind of specific avenue of redemptive history is because, remember last time I said, what is a theological theme? A theological theme is the unique and comprehensive idea of any given book. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you remember me talking about this? And what the background of 2 Samuel does is it sets up for the one and unique, exclusive, comprehensive theme of the book of 2 Samuel. You have to know the background to have everything set up and situated so that you can have the fit, the unique contribution of 2 Samuel to the entire plan of God. That's why we're going through the background. You have to see how it all sets up. Uh, on a devotional kind of note, when, when we go through this, he, here is something you need to think about. Uh, and that is the need, first, the need for a king. The need for a king. Uh, you hear it in Job's desperate cries. You see, it's, you see his necessity in the cosmic destruction that has occurred due to sin and the ability of the king to come back and rule and thereby restore order. You see it in how nations have been split up and how he is the one to rule all nations and so he has much glory. You see it in the law by by virtue of the fact that this is how a king ought to be. You see it in Judges and Ruth because in the total darkness of the book of Judges where everything is so chaotic and so evil, you have this beautiful gem of Ruth, this love story that ends gloriously because it ends with the birth of the king, the true king, the one that will restore everything back to what it ought to be. All of these things together throughout redemptive history, you just see why this king is so special and why the Bible is 
really setting up for this. But you also see this, that the Lord has been at work, at a lot of work, uh, to, to have ultimately, as we know, having the full scope of Revelation, his son come. It wasn't just he creates an earth, and then boom, he could just send a son and it's over. There's a lot of effort to make sure that his son is presented gloriously. He, he ordains everything in the world and transforms nations, ri- brings rise and fall and all these kinds of things, gives law, does spectacular miracles, all to introduce his son. And that tells you a lot about the love of God for his own son, but it also just tells you that there's a lot of work here. It's not just so simple. <clears throat> you can't just view it so simply. A, an undivided love for the Savior is a wonderful thing. But we cannot forget that the more you know, hopefully, about him, and about all that comes about him, around him, the deeper you will love him. Does that make sense? Uh, even in a relationship, it works the same way. You know, you have a, if you're married or will get married in the future, you know, you can love your wife or husband based upon just some simple facts. But as you get to know them more and more and they sacrifice more and their trials or triumphs or whatever it may be, their love only grows deeper because there's more reasons to love. In the same way, uh, our love for our Savior and for God increases exponentially as we see how he has orchestrated all these events just so that his son could be the king. A um, little side note there. In the book of Ephesians, uh, if you read chapter 1, and this is coming from my Ephesians class from fall, from the fall, uh, you see that God is doing everything in his plan in the Son. In Christ, all these things happen. In Christ, all these things happen. In Christ, all these things happen. And the idea is that God is orchestrating and watching and observing all things as Christ has complete and total control and instrumentation and agency in, in allowing and bringing the fruition of all these intentions that he has in his plan. Does that make sense? So God says, hey, let's save those people. Well, where does it happen? In Christ. So Christ is the one who is indeed reconciling man, redeeming man, providing forgiveness, all these things. Does that make sense to everybody? He's watching his son do all these things. And, and so the analogy I can give based upon the Pauline perspective of redemptive history is this, that God the Father, it's like God the Father watching his son on the playground that God has created. Does that make sense? And his son is the hero and he made it that way. And his son gets glory because of all the spectacular things that he does on this playground that we call the world. And the joy of the son becomes the glory of the father because there's nothing that pleases the father more than seeing his son happy and exalted on this playground. Does that make sense? But unlike our playground and our fathers and ourselves, you know, when you're on the playground, you're just in an imaginary world, right? You're like, oh, I'm going to storm the castle, but it's not a castle, it's just a swing set. And, and you're, oh, I'm going to take him down with my stick and there's nobody there. And, you know, your parents watch and they think it's cute and they, and they are happy that you are in an imaginary world. <laughs> that sounds terrible. But the, the thing is, this is real. 
This is real. And God has ordained it because the world is all in Christ in the sense that he is the center and everything relative to the world. And that gives joy and glory to the Father. Um, how does that link with Second Samuel? Or shall I say, how does Second Samuel set up for that? Well, if you haven't been noticing, God has ordained all these different things in redemptive history so that when his son comes much, much later, right? We're, we're not even close to the New Testament in the book of Ruth. Does that make sense to everybody? I mean, you're still in the thousands of, in, of B, in B.C. time. You still have about a thousand years before you'll ever see Jesus born in a manger. Does that make sense to everybody? But already, God has set up all these glorious things so that when he comes, the world will be in awe of him. And when he comes again, which hasn't happened, so like now we're talking about thousands and thousands of years later, every knee will bow before him. Okay? That's, and that is why God gets glory. Cross-reference 1 Corinthians 15, because his, he wants to see his son as the ultimate supreme king. And that gives God glory. And then he hands in honor of his father, the son hands over the kingdom to him. Okay. We are in the book of 1 Samuel. What we have seen is Job, he cries for the mediator. The Pentateuch sets up for how this mediator, this king, will function and resolve cursing, turn it into blessing, rule over nations. He's from the tribe of Judah. We see all of that start to play out. We understand that he's linked with what building? The tabernacle. Remember that? Why? Because Eden was not just a nice garden. It was also a throne room where man ruled over all creation. That's why man was made in the image of God in the first place. And so the, re the erection of the tabernacle as the first building, one aspect of that is to say God still reigns. And the order that, is, that was originally provided at creation in Eden, it can be regained. We can have the mediation occur. We, there will be a king who will come into the tabernacle to rule and provide peace to everything. And that's, in fact, what the name Shiloh, Genesis 49.10, probably means. In any case, the, the book of Numbers continues to talk about his earthly rule, that he will, this king will rule over nations, Deuteronomy, gives us the three Gs, which are what? Girls. Girls and gals are the same thing. Get, get, I, hope, I hope so, at least. Gals, golden, giddy up. Gotta be faster, man. I mean, you, you guys should, you should just say it. So, I mean, remember, the, the 1.30 a.m. test. You know, even after you've had NyQuil, doesn't matter. Just, I wake you up and you, I, three Gs. And you don't, you, you even know it before I wake you up. That's how well you have to know it. You just say it. Okay, you dream about it. You need to know it like that. Because okay? if you don't, if you don't know it like that, uh, we're we're not going to make it here. <clears throat> and so Deuteronomy provides us a what what some have called a Deuteronomic lens on the rest of history, which is absolutely true, which is absolutely true. Joshua judges Ruth. The position of king now is created because okay, we have all the framework. We know in general what the king is going to do, but now we got to put all of that in action, not just theoretical, but in real time history. 
So how do we do that? Well, God situates Israel in the land with all these statues, with all this theory, with all this theology, and then creates the window of opportunity for the king to come through the time of the judges. The judges is a black backdrop. There's chaos. Even the nations know that. But soon, things will be turned around for Israel and for before all the nations. And what will they all attribute it to? The king. Does that make sense to everybody? Uh, one footnote about that. When all the nations see Israel at this time, they just view it as this terrible, terrible place. Un, not safe place. And a dangerous place. And then all of a sudden, when you get to the end of, or the midpoint of David's reign into Solomon's reign, it becomes like Disneyland. Like everyone wants to be Solomon's buddy, you know, economically speaking. That's why he's got a thousand wives. Okay, because it's like, oh, well, let's, let's have some connections here. Well, what do they attribute to this transformation? They attribute it to the king of Israel. And so everyone is afraid for when the true king returns to Israel, because that would mean that Israel will once again become glorious from its ashes. Does this make sense to everybody? And that is ingrained in the ideology of the ancient Near East. Does this make sense? Such that when you read Ezra and Nehemiah, what they do to try to stop the building of the walls and the temple is they say, don't you remember kings came from here? Powerful kings who overthrew nations. Why did they say that? Well, it's true, but they knew if we allow Jerusalem to be continually constructed, we know where this is going to head. And if that king comes back, it's over for all of us. So we got to stop this now. Are you with me on this? God had providentially already set up the strategy to announce who this king would be and what he would be all about through past precedent. All right. So we are now in 1 Samuel. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. I think I think that was. Uh, it might not be an emphasized point as much. Well, I shouldn't even say that. As much in certain Gospels, maybe I could put it that way. But it is. I mean, Jesus is a big threat. Herod, here's the easy one. Herod is immediately intimidated by Jesus. And Jesus is just a baby. And Herod's about to die. I mean, he's got a year max left in his life. And he, and he wants to kill a baby because he thinks that baby's going to take over his throne. Now, that's just irrational. What is he going to do? Throw a rattle at you? I mean, it's just, uh, he can't even walk yet. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. But Jesus comes. Everyone knows he's the ki true king of the Jews, and that strikes fear in the heart of people. Same thing with Pilate. Same thing with even Caesar. Uh, there is contrast in the Gospels, particularly Mark, I would argue, uh, with Jesus and Caesar. Uh, here, I, it's easy. I can prove. Well, I can't prove it to you because you'll have to take my word for it. But how does Mark begin? The beginning of the gospel of the good news of the Lord of Jesus Christ. Everyone remember that? You know where that phrase is from? You're like, no. Tell us. Okay, I'll tell you. Um, the, it's from Caesar's diary or Caesar's proclamation. Caesar, 
conqueror of all lands, the one who provided peace, the one who went out in conquest and battle, coming back victorious to Rome. This is the beginning of the good news of Caesar. Do you see what the point is? Mark says, he's not the savior, Romans. Not like the Romans as in the book of Romans, but the Roman people. He's not your savior. Who's the savior? Jesus. He's the one who went out in victory. He's the one who went out in conquest. And yes, while the conquest looked like it was suffering and weakness, it was still a conquest nonetheless. And that is what produced the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? So the tensions are there. The tensions are there. Uh, yeah, you can, you can find it for yourself. And it's beautiful. I just finished studying Mark um, this past summer, so it's really fresh on my mind. It, it's just spectacular. I, there's just nothing short, there's nothing else that can be said. But yes, to answer your question, Kim, yes. There are these intentional punches uh, against the nations and intimidations against the kings. <clears throat> well, okay, one more note. Because while I'm here, it, it's just good to know this. Romans 13 is about what? Submission to your government. Yeah, we all know that. And it's, Romans is, this sounds stupid, but what, who is it written to? The Romans. Okay, good. And here's what is so fascinating, right? For a religion that gravitates and centralizes upon the individual who is the threat to every human government. Right? Romans, it's even in a chiastic structure in 12 through 14 and 15, where on the outside you have the interactions between believers, you know, like uh, how you use gifts in Romans 12 versus how you treat your weaker brother, stronger brother in Romans 14, 15. Everyone remember what I'm talking about? And then at, and, and then there's this discussion about love. Here, why don't you just turn there? Otherwise, otherwise, I'm not sure if you know what I'm talking about. Here, Romans 12. Scan through 1 through 8. Just quickly, scan through it, and you'll see... Right? You'll see even things that you read about in 1 Corinthians 12. Hey, isn't that cool? Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Like you can make a connection there. It's not inspired. Con I mean, the 12s are an inspired connection. Paul had the same thing in mind. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, but it's easy now. It's like, oh, where's the body found? 12 and 12. Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Okay, anyway. So, and then you compare that with verses, or chapters 14 and 15, which talk about how to deal with stronger and weaker brothers. There's, there is church interactions there on the outside. Does this make sense? If you go further inside this sandwich, notice verse 9 of chapter 12. Let love be without hypocrisy. Everyone see that? Go to chapter 13, verse 8, and what do you see? Let owe no one anything except for what? Love. Do you see a connection there? Love, love. It's not that hard to find, yes? Well, if this is the case, if you have believer, I'll just abbreviate, interactions on the outside, and then you have love and love on the inside, what's in chapter 13? Obey your government as a central point. 
in the plan of the gospel of God, in the plan of the gospel of God, in the midst of a very sensitive political area. Rome is the capital of the world. Yes? Paul says, Jesus is the true king. Remember, I even said that 2 Samuel gives you the background on Romans chapter 1 because Jesus pronounced the Son of God from the seed of David. Everyone remember that? Well, that's very politically charged. And everyone might think, well, he's a threat. He brings in the true gospel. He brings in true salvation. He's the one who's going to ultimately resolve international conflicts and international situations. And he's going to fulfill every single promise. And that promise relates to the physical world. And you know, all that we've talked about is now going to come in fruition. That's an inherent threat to the government. But how do you demonstrate that intimidation correctly? You don't overthrow your government. You what? Submit. You do what's so much more powerful. Because people are saying, you of all people, you of all people should be insurrectionists. And you say, no, what marks me is I obey the government. Why? Because my God, who is the true King of Kings, told me to. And even if it's unfair and unjust, I will do it. Because that's what testifies to the true king established in chapters 1 through 12. Does this make sense to everybody? This is a chiasm. Everyone know what a chiasm is? That's good. The most important part of a chiasm is usually what? The center. Right? Just like a sandwich, right? You don't have a wheat bread sandwich. You have a whatever, whatever sandwich. Why? Because the center part is the most important. Now, do you need bread for a sandwich? Usually. Not anymore, I mean, right? But, um, but usually you need something, at least you need something on the outside of a sandwich, no matter what. But you get the picture. It's still important, but this is even more important, or more stressed. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, good. That was a total aside, but it was worth saying so that you see, right? Jesus, I mean, based upon all this background, he carries a lot of weight, more weight than you might originally realize. Because nowadays we just say, oh, Jesus, you know, he's like a nice little chap, and uh, he wants to have coffee with you and, and, and make you a frappuccino or something. And uh, not, no, that's, that's not going to work. Um, just not going to work. We have the theological framework. We need to set this into reality. Joshua Judges Ruth does so. But now, to continue this progression, we are in 1 Samuel. So now we are in letter D. Everyone where, where I should have been at the very beginning? 1 Samuel, letter D. Everyone there? Good. Um, <clears throat> How does 1 Samuel work? And what is the strategy behind 1 Samuel? 1 Samuel is inherently the preparation of king and kingdom. 1 Samuel is the preparation for king and kingdom. It is to give you the foundational elements that will be combined in 2 Samuel and thereafter 
so that you understand what God's plan is about. It, first Samuel provides you the foundational elements. Okay, Let's say you're cooking. Unless you use TV dinners, things are not all put together at one moment, right? You first have to usually, what? Gather your ingredients, put them all on the table. Does that make sense? First Samuel is the gathering of ingredients and putting them all on the table. So that in Second Samuel, what are you going to do? Mix them all together and start stirring everything. Does that make sense to everybody? Second Samuel is a convergence. First Samuel is setting the scene. And so what you learn in 1 Samuel are kind of the basic elements of the kingdom. And let me give you some. We won't cover... Uh, some of them are not as pertinent to our discussion as others, but they all have importance. Okay? What you learn from the very, 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 very beginning is you need the right priest. The right priest to have the, right, to have the kingdom. He's in a key ingredient, the right priest. The line of Eli is an abominable line. It must be eradicated. It is illegitimate. It is not part of the promised line of the priest. Therefore, it cannot be part of the kingdom. Its removal is mandatory for you to have correct mediation in the kingdom. That's number one. That's why you get Samuel. Samuel's actually part of the right line, by the way. More importantly than that, because I think things are starting to build, more importantly, and more pertinent to this discussion, the kingdom is with a capital K-I-N-G reigns most visibly. The capital K-I-N-G reigns most visibly. That's God. Remember the incident about the ark? Ark's taken, remember? Goes to the Philistine city, cities and then they have to deliver it back and there's the tumors, and, uh, and it seems like it's like the Black Plague. Everyone remember that? They send the thing back on a cart. What is that all trying to testify? Yahweh is king. Don't forget. We're going to start this kingdom thing pretty soon. I'm already starting to arrange the priests accordingly for a variety of reasons. I don't have time to go through it here. But don't forget, before I start to establish a lowercase k-i-n-g, lowercase human representative king, Everything is contingent around this one, the capital K-I-N-G, God. The kingdom is when he is most displayed in his reign upon this earth as king. <clears throat> and that's the reminder that we receive in, say, 1 Samuel 4 and 5. What happens, though, is Israel does request for a king. Now, is that request inherently wrong? Is it wrong to want a king? No, because the Bible, hello, has already been promising this whole time. What? You're going to get a king. You want a king. The problem was that the king that Israel wanted was a monarchy as opposed to a what? Theocracy. What did they forget? Hello? Remember what happened 20 years ago? Yeah, that would be a good idea to remember since you obviously forgot. So where do they get a king like? They got a king not based upon God's criteria of three things. What were the three things? Three Gs? Gals? Okay, good. That was much better. 
that was only like a two second wait time. Uh, I mean, we want this like McDonald's. I mean, I just say it and it's there, you know? Okay, uh, that, that's, I mean, it, it's, they're good. So, so, but you get the wrong king. You get a king named who? Saul. And what Saul serves as is a literary foil. Do you guys know what a foil is? We're going to use that a lot. A foil is a character of contrast. A character of contrast. Let me give you the wrong guy first, so then you understand why the right guy is the right guy. Does that make sense? That's the function of Saul in biblical history. God says, okay, I'm going to teach you this the hard way, guys. I'm going to give you a loser. Now, what was Saul's greatest quality according to the text yeah yeah he's a good looking guy he's tall tall Saul is tall okay he's very tall I mean even Samuel says it look he stands head and shoulder above everyone else he's your king everyone's like yeah that's exactly what we want and you know and amen well unfortunately K-I-N-G capitalized that doesn't really care about how um Saul looks. He just picked the looks of Saul because he knew that's what the people wanted. All external. But Saul fails on so many different lines. It's not even funny. He never does what God tells him to do. That would be a tremendous problem, makes bad decisions, and ultimately ruins what God originally intended with his plan for the Amalekites. And God says to Saul, today I've removed from you your kingdom. What does that mean? You are no longer king. After 1 Samuel 15, Saul should have stepped down from the throne. Right? Saul is no longer king. In God's eyes, after 1 Samuel 15. He's not. Instead, who's the real king? A guy named David. Who is characterized in 1 Samuel 13, as well as 1 Samuel 16, as a man after God's own heart. That's the major qualification. But might I point out something? Does David is are David's looks described in 1 Samuel 16? Yes, they are. They are. He's not a bad-looking dude. And immediately what you have here is what? Attention. He has a good heart, but he's also sometimes just external. Do you see a problem? Do you see how there's going to be tensions? Do you also see how the narrator is already saying, are they going to be different? Yes. But are they also going to be similar? Yeah. David is already set up for failure in 1 Samuel 16, if you see it carefully. If I was a movie producer, okay, you know, maybe I have some happy music when David's anointed and stuff, but then I have this camera shot where David kind of looks like Saul. Does that make sense? And so you know, oh man, what's going to happen? This, this guy is not all that he is cut out to be. Does that make sense to everybody? Yeah, that the Bible has a, there's a biblical theology of being physically ugly. No, I'm just joking. The, <coughs> the, Kim, you asked the most wonderful questions in all honesty. It's, it's not because he's just good looking. It's because it's mixed. You see, why does the Bible say Saul was the good king for Israel? Because of how he looked. What did God say should qualify a king? 
a man after his own heart. But then the narrator says, David is a man after his own heart, but David is also good looking. So now you've got a tension. Everyone with me on this? Do you see how the narrator is doing that? And you're like, oh, wait, what? Then, zoom to the New Testament. I've already mentioned this before. Jesus is not, Jesus' appearance is not mentioned. Only his character. Why? Because it's not relevant what he looks like. Because he's not, because our judgments on him cannot be external because that's where every other king failed. He succeeds. See that? And I'm not saying that Jesus was ugly or anything like that. We don't know. And we don't need to care. But here you do. Because that throws attention into the whole, that throws a wrench into the whole equation. You're already slated to fail even before this whole thing appears or begins. So we get the wrong king. He's all external. We get the right, quote-unquote, stress on their king. And now the issue is, how do we prepare this guy so that we can get to the Davidic covenant? How do we prepare this guy, David, so that we can get to the Davidic covenant? The rest of 1 Samuel answers that question. You see, what you learn from the time of David and Goliath, by the way, who should have fought Goliath? Saul, duh. He's your champion. Who's our champion? Well, the tall guy who's taller than everybody else, right? Like, who's China going to get to play basketball for them? Yao Ming. Duh, because he's a giant in China, right? Like, he can't even fit in the subway because, you know, he's too tall or whatever. So, you got you got to, you know, I don't know if that's true. I just made that up. But the thing is, you got to get the champion to fight Goliath. Does that make sense? But he doesn't have the heart, so he is no champion. David has heart, but does he have the maturity to know how to rightly be the king? The answer is not yet. So God, even though he should have been king immediately, even at that time, God puts him through a series of trials in the wilderness. And what is so fascinating, and I was talking with Boyd about this, and it is just so edifying to discuss these things, is there are so many illusions. Who else was in the wilderness? The nation of Israel, right? Uh, They were coming out of uh, Egypt, and they were going into the wilderness, wandering around for 40 years. Everyone remember that. There's a lot of connection there. There's a lot of connection there. There's a lot of connection with Jacob. Anyone remember uh, remember David lies to the priest? And who sees it? Anyone remember the guy's name? Dog. Yeah, and Dog is a what? Edomite. Why does it say that over and over? Dog the Edomite. Dog the Edomite. Because we're back to the original tension of what? Esau versus who? Jacob. And remember what happened? Jacob has to... What Does Jacob just hang around home after he steals the birthright and say, hey, yeah, I'm just going to chill here and die? No, of course not. So he runs away and wanders. See that? And you're back to that whole thing again. And so now, Jacob... Oh, I don't even know how to write. And Jacob corporately becomes Israel 
right? Because what does Jacob's name change to? Israel, because the whole nation of Israel comes from who? Israel or Jacob, who's winnowed back down to David. See that? And if we jump the gun a little bit, because actually there's a lot that happens in between here and Matthew 4, but um, I think you'll start to see why the temptation narratives exist. Yes? Because where was Jesus? In the wilderness. And the questions that God have given Jacob and Israel in the wilderness and David are all the same. Will you trust me? Will you wait for my timing? Will you follow and obey me no matter what? And every one of them fails. Jacob fails miserably. Actually, he fails hilariously. Uh, It's so funny. Every time I read it, I just think it's hilarious. Uh, But if I was Jacob's wife, I would be horrified. But anyway, Israel fails tragically, or maybe I should say Israel fails catastrophically. That's why they're wandering for 40 years, yes? That would be a problem. David fails tragically, because when David fails, who else also fails because they're tied to him? Israel again. And ultimately, that leads them to exile. You see that? But what's the glory? Jesus doesn't fail. Right? He, he, he survives and overcomes the temptations. And yes, while it is very helpful to view Jesus as a model, okay, in the temptations about how we can overcome temptations, do you understand that that's not Matthew's point at all? Matthew's point is to tell you they failed. This is the king. This is the king. They wandered in the wilderness and they lost it there. Not this one. Not this one. Yeah. Are you saying that the stories of Jacob and Israel and David are actually the Well, they're like, they're similar, or they're integrated, I guess, into the temptation narrative. For example, David's narrative in 1 Samuel, since, uh, why not? I mean, we're already here. So, 1 Samuel is actually divided into three parts. And I can prove this to you really easy. The first part is, remember, David lies to the priest. And where do you think the scene ends? When the priests all die. That would be a good section break. Does that make sense? Because that would be conclusion to the problem. Yes. And then the next two sections, sections two and three, remember David interacts with Saul twice. He had the opportunity to kill Saul twice. Do you remember that? And they're not back-to-back scenarios. One is in chapter 24, and then one is at the end of chapter 25. Are you with me on this? That breaks up the next two sections. Those conclude, David, temptation, will you kill Saul to get your position? Yeah, maybe, maybe I should just take the kingdom by my own power fast. Does that make sense to everybody? Or are you going to actually submit to the king? You see how this, how 1 Samuel says, look, it's all about the king. It takes that seriously. Does this make sense to everybody? Then the second one, you see David, uh, remember Abigail and Nabal and Abigail, remember that story? That's the next story. And David, you know, Nabal's like, I'm not giving you any food, you're a loser, you know, and I'm dumb. You know what Nabal means, by the way? Fool. 
it's the worst, it's actually the second worst word for fool. There's kasil, which means you're an apostate fool. That's, that's really bad. But Nabal is like, you know, like second degree fool. You know, but they have range of fool in the Bible, right? There, there's a whole theology of fool, you know, so you could do that. Yeah. Uh, I think they just would have said you lived up to it. <laughs> that could have been his nickname, by the way. But it was a well-deserved nickname, let's put it that way. Because his, cause, you know, you're just not going to tell these warriors who are hungry, who have been protecting you for all this time, no, you can't have anything. I'm going to take you all on. You, you can't. You're fat anyway, so you're going to die of a heart attack in like two days. So it doesn't matter. And David, what does David do? Everyone, take your sword. Now, even though Nabal insulted David, does David have any right to kill him, technically? No. What was he doing? He was prematurely trying to become king. Do you see that? He broke God's timing. Doesn't that kind of say, sound like, hey, Jesus, if you just bow before me, I'll give you the kingdoms in advance. I'll just front you them. David, are you going to do what's wrong to obtain a kingdom faster. Does that make sense? Yeah? Well, then why did um, Samuel anoint him so young or so soon? No, go ahead. I'm listening. I'm... Oh, okay. To test him. To test him and refine him. See, because we haven't gotten to 2 Samuel yet, right? The first chapter in 2 Samuel, if we ever get there, will tell you, 1 Samuel, God's refining David. David is, does David kill Nabal? No, thank the Lord. If he did, everything would go terrible. Because he would have grabbed the kingdom prematurely. He would have failed, ultimately failed, irre- irrevocably failed the test. And it's all over. I mean, we're not saved. That's what, that would be the end result. That would be a problem. Uh, on a whole bunch of levels. So, but he doesn't. Why? Because Abigail says, David, don't do it. My husband is Nabal. Hint, hint, he's Nabal. Oh, he's second degree fool. So, okay, 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 cool. And, you know, I won't do it. And David's even thankful for that. So the next time Saul comes around, and now it's the question is, well, it's not just, do you respect the office of king? and are willing to trust the Lord, will you wait? Will you be patient, David, to wait for God's timing? That's the second question, and that's in the found in the third, dis, that's found in the third section, and David says, I'll wait for the Lord to do whatever. Does that make sense? I'll wait for God. I'm not going to take it prematurely. And Jesus, in Matthew 4, in the final temptation, Satan's saying, hey, I can let you bypass the cross. You can have the kingdom without the suffering. You can have the kingdom without bearing the curse. I'll just give it to you. Just bow to me. Sin. Don't wait for God's plan and timing. I'll just give it to you preemptively. And Jesus says, no. See that? And the questions now that have been set up by all this, David needs to be relatively the model foundation so that everyone understands the nature of the Davidic covenant. Even in the Davidic covenant, whose name do you see? David. Why? Because he will become, in one sense, and I'd be very careful here, the paradigm. 
everyone has to understand at least the general direction that this covenant is headed and the general ideas behind this covenant because otherwise you won't understand what God is going to do later on with Jesus. Does this make sense? It's not that David predicts Jesus, but does David prepare the way? Yes. Does that make sense to everybody? A model of a car does not predict that there will be a car. It just helps you understand what the car is what? Like. Does that make sense? David is the man to make the covenant because David has qualities that are not like who? Saul. Are you with me on this? Does this make sense? We're going to skip impact of 2 Samuel. You're like, what? Uh, yeah, because... Uh, I've already talked about it a little bit, and you'll see it all the time, right? I even mentioned it here, Matthew 4. See? Kudos to me. So the thing is, uh, you will see it so often throughout this whole time, but here's all you have to do is write. It impacts everything. That's all you have to say. And then, and then we're back into this. <clears throat> the throne established. That's the title page, right, that you have right there? That's where we are now, on the title page. You're like, you're going to lecture on the title page? Just this. The book of 2 Samuel, the first third of it, I guess you could say, is establishing the throne, saying, David, you're the right... Okay, now you can turn, turn the page. And this is context overview. Now, we're, now we're, we're, fine, we're almost there. We're about to read the first words of the book of 2 Samuel. Uh, hey, look, it's not that bad. This is week two, right? So, that's good. In Ephesians, I didn't get to Ephesians for like a month or something ridiculous. So... Uh, we're in the context and overview section. Oh. <sighs> okay. Your English Bible's right here. Use it. Right? Read it. Make sure you read the text along like I'm talking about. Does that make sense to everybody? Um, and if you need to highlight, does that make sense, the text, if that's going to help you, do so. Or circle things. I know it's small. I'm trying to save trees and things like that and and I like it all on one page for you to see. But just do whatever it takes, right? Manipulate this page for, for your education. So we are in the context and overview section where I give you context and overview. And here's the context and overview. The question of 1 Samuel at the very end is, is David the right man for the job? Is he at all usable for... God's purposes to establish the covenant of the king. Does this make sense? The question is, as you can even see with uh, Roman numeral 1 on the left-hand side, is he the right person? God's choice by right person. That is the essential question because really what we will learn and the first thing we see here even you must have the right person for the covenant to work. You must have the right person for the covenant to work. If you don't have the right person, the covenant will not function. Okay. Just like you need gas for a car, you need the right person for the covenant. Okay. Think of... Uh, you know, I always get confused about the Arthur Chronicles. I should read up on them, but... Sword in the Stone, right? It's not Excalibur, it's some other sword. Somebody told me that once. But only one person can pull the sword out of the stone, right? The real king. Everyone remember that? That's the way this is set up. There is only one right 
person for the job. You must first have the right person to establish the covenant. Does this make sense to everybody? And the entire point of the first chapter is to tell you we have the right person for the job. The covenant now can be officially established. And the strategy thereafter is for God to so clearly establish David on the throne that everyone, including the world, knows this is the right king. Not Saul, David. And because it's so clear, everyone will understand the nature thereby of how powerful the Davidic covenant must be. Are you with me on this? Do you see the strategy of the author here, of how he's going to guide you? These are a bunch of confirmations of this is good about David. This is good about his kingdom. This is how strong his throne is. Therefore, you know the Davidic covenant is a certain way. Are you with me? Does this make sense? This specific section talks about David as a person because that's foundational. David's personhood is foundational. Did God refine David victoriously? That's the question. Will David try to preemptively take the throne by force, by some illegitimate means, or will he actually submit to the capital K-I-N-G to give it to him? That's the question. That's the question. And within this narrative, you have a lot of other kind of subplots and sub-themes coming out, and we'll try to cover them as best as we possibly can. Right? And if we're fortunate, then maybe we can get to our SPP. Any questions? That was a lot. So, I know. It was a lot. Everyone with me? Y'all okay? Okay. We are now, I'm in the wrong part of my Bible, in Second Samuel chapter 1. Turn there. Or read along in your notes, if you prefer. <clears throat> the first way we know that David is the right person is his reverence for the office. Saul never revered the position of king. Saul never revered the position of king. That's why he was always the wrong person. He was always external, but he did not have a great respect for the role that Saul ought to have played in redemptive history. He never respected that. Uh, do you guys remember what happened when uh, they were raiding Jabesh Gilead? What was Saul doing? Does anyone remember? In 1 Samuel? What? Yeah, he was plowing. Do kings farm? No! But what does that tell you? Saul was more interested in doing his own thing rather than what? Being a king. He never cared. Never cared. Saul was supposed to, as this king, kill the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 for all the atrocities they had done to Israel way, way, way back in their history, at the founding of the nation, really. Saul never does it. Instead, he's using it for his own personal gain. Saul never cares about the office. The question is, will David? Right? That's the first difference between the two. And 2 Samuel chapter 1 shows us in amazing detail that David is not like a man like Saul. David loves this office. He reveres 
this office. And that makes him qualified to be the true king. So let's start and try to tease out how this all works. The text begins, and it came after the death of Saul. Now, here's just a quick study tip. You should probably underline or highlight it came about after. It came about after. Uh, if, if the NAS is going to be consistent, and I hope, and usually they are about this kind of stuff, that it came about after is a big narrative marker. It's a very significant one. Okay, I'm trying to help you also just to develop clues and how you piece together Old Testament stories. All right? It came about after the death of Saul. Second, first Samuel ends with the death of Saul. First, first Samuel ends with the death of Saul. Second Samuel begins with it. The death of Saul means that the throne now is not just positionally open because Saul was never really the legitimate king anyway after first, first Samuel 16, but now it's practically open. Does that make sense? But the question is exactly the question I asked you. Will David be the one who what? Fills it or what? Somebody else right? Maybe Saul's cousin. Maybe Abner. Not me, but the other guy. Um, Maybe somebody else will do it. How do you know David's going to be the right guy for the job? How is God going to put David on a new throne? Not just Saul's throne, but a Davidic throne, his own dynasty. These are the questions. It's a dark time. It's a time of chaos. David returns from slaughtering the Amalekites. That might be a key word too, the Amalekites. David doesn't like Amalekites. In fact, who failed to kill the Amalekites before, by the way? Saul. Who kills them here? David. See, you already start to have some differences between the two. David remains two days in Ziklag. You're like, why why is that important? Like two days. Why does it have to give us that time frame? Ziklag is like right there. Z for Ziklag. Okay, it's pretty far south. Uh, uh, okay, well, it's I mean, it's probably a little further to the left than up, but that's okay. Gilboa, right there. Distance between the two, probably a three-day walk. Does that make sense? Three-day walk. So if David's there for two days, the battle's commencing up there, and who comes along on the third day? Verse 2. A man. Right? You see that. Everyone see that? Do you know who this man is? Do you see his race or anything like that? No. All you know is this is a man. We'll learn more about him as, as, as time passes. That means David has no way of knowing anything that happened up here except through who? That man. Does this make sense to everybody? Because this has to be the first messenger guy. He's here for two days. This guy arrives on the third day. This is a three-day journey. So presumably, argued by the biblical narrator, this is the first guy to show up. David doesn't know if this guy's telling the truth or lying. Does that make sense to everybody? He has no clue. No clue. He's innocent in this matter. So he's going to take the man at his word. On the third day, behold, a man came out of the camp of Saul... And he's got some dust on his head, right? Clothes torn, dust on his head. Uh, for, later, for a later reference, and I'll tell you how I got this later, 
just note the dust on the head. Okay, this is a figure person that's going to show up. If you have me for Life of Christ or for other classes, I talk about the uh, the Pottery Man. Anyone remember that? Me talking about the pot? Yeah. Okay, some of you do. Some of you don't. It's okay. You'll figure it out later. This is the Dusty Head Man. All right, he's going to show up later. Just remember that. Just write in your notes. Remember the Dusty Head Man. And it'll make sense. This dusty head man tells of the downfall of Saul's kingdom. This dusty head man tells of the fall of Saul's kingdom. He comes to David, and what does he do? He falls to the ground and prostrates himself. He bows to David. Now, why is that important? What's going on? Treating him as a what? Say it louder. Treating him as the king. What's already you start to have a temptation arise, do you not? David, this man treats you like a king. Now, is it so clear? No, but it can go that way, can it? Will you fight the temptation to seize an office that you totally do not possess just yet? Or will you take it by illegitimate means? Uh, by the way, go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 9. See, here's a connection with the New Testament. Verse 9, read it someone out loud. Matthew 4, 9. All these I will give to you if falling down you worship me. What's interesting is, what, is the, what does the man, what does the Amalekite do? He falls down and bows. See that? Not all the uh, gospel accounts are not Mark to be, or excuse me, not Luke. Luke does not have the falling down, just if you will worship me. But this is probably an allusion back to 2 Samuel chapter 1. Here David is tempted by a man who will fall down and worship him. And Jesus has an inverse temptation. If you fall down and worship me, are you going to be like the Amalekite? Are you going to give away the kingdom like David was tempted to? Right here? Does this make sense to everybody? So, we see this temptation arise and David says, where have you come from? And he says, I've escaped from the camp of Israel. And... Um, David says, how did everything go? And he says, everyone is, I mean, everyone died, including who? Saul and Jonathan. Saul and Jonathan. Um, And already, you're like, why does he emphasize the death of Saul and Jonathan? You should be asking yourselves these kind of questions. And the man says, well, I'll tell you how I know that he's dead. Uh, by the way, do we know what race this man is yet? I have no clue. He's just a young man. He said, by chance. Now, now, what does that sound like to you? By chance. Is this man a seriously committed person to Israel? No. He's just wandering around. Gilboa. Like, and really, think about it this way. 
would you just be wandering around a battle zone? Like, well, <laughs> well how did you, how did you uh, hear about the Black Hawk Down? Well, I was just wandering around Mogadishu. Why? <laughs> Why not? I mean, I'm from America, but I'm over there. I mean, who cares? I mean, Amalek is down south. So, I mean, this is a really big wandering. Like, you just meandered hundreds of miles up to there? Like, right here is oh, that's a really nice mountain. Oh, they're killing each other. Oh, okay, let's just wander around. This guy is inherently careless. Inherently what? Irreverent. There's a serious battle going on, and you're just wandering around? Who are you? So we start to develop another foil. Foil between who? David and the young man. Do you see that? It's David versus Saul, but now it will also be David versus Saul versus young man. We'll call him YM. Okay? The young man. Does this make sense to everybody? You just happen to be walking around? Yeah, 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 that's me. I'm careless and dumb and irreverent. Okay, good. And what happened? And I just so happened to be on, upon Saul. This just sounds incredibly incriminating. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen pursued him closely. He said, who are you? And he said, what? I am an... For the first time now, we understand who this man is. Right? Is he a friend of Israel or an enemy? Enemy. And so... Saul says, um, Saul says, go ahead and kill me. And what did the Amalekite do? What did he do? He killed him. That's what he claims. Is it true? No, it's not. If you read the other account, the guy is lying. But does David know that? No. But you already start to understand, this guy is in it for the what? Money, right? He's in it for the money. And I took the crown on his head and the bracelet on his arm. Okay, crown on his head, bracelet on the arm. Why did he take those things? Not just prove himself. Five, wait, go ahead. Yes, that's bottom line. Find favor with David is the other thing. And then first of all, prove that Saul and Saul's dead, right? You know, Saul's not just, can I, can I have a souvenir? Can I, can I take your crown? Well, why not? Sure, I don't care about it anyway. Here we go. He's not going to say that. Only if he's dead. Here's the proof. He's dead. But what does the Amalekite say to him? I have brought them here to my what? Lord. What's the, what's, what's the key word there? Lord. Why? Because he's saying, you're the king now, David. Take the crown. Do you see how the temptation is pretty vivid here? Yes. Why would an Amalekite make that claim? Yeah. That's exactly the question the text wants you to ask. What? First of all, there's a lot of questions here, right? Play detective with this text a little bit. How would the Amalekite... Okay, Saul's dead. You're an Amalekite. You see it. How would you know to run to... Yeah, how would you, how would you run all the way here? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Or, but 
if you're just a wanderer, if you're just a young man, if you just so happen to be there and you're kind of a foreigner, clueless, why would you run to David? Do you see the problem? This guy pretends he has no knowledge, but yet he, ha- he seems to have what? All kinds of knowledge. Does that make sense? On one hand, this man seems to be careless, but then this careless man goes and kills who? Saul, the king. How can you be so careless and then all of a sudden be so calculating and cold-blooded? Does that make sense to everybody? What, 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 who are you? This man's story is inherently contains multiple contradictions, multiple senses of injustice, multiple senses of deception. And here you begin to have a contrast. David, are you going to take the crown? And what does David do in verse 11? What does he do? What does he and his men do? Tears his clothes. What else? Mourned. And then what? Fasted. Until evening. So basically, what is the Amalekite watching? What, I mean, it's until evening. So right now it might be midday, early morning. And the Amalekites just watching them do what? Nothing, in a sense, all day long. Compare that to who? Compare that to who? Who are you supposed to instantly compare this? David's reaction to with who? Not Saul's. Saul's dead. The young man. What did the young man do? What does the young man have? Torn clothes and dust on his head. What's the only thing that matches with the with David's buddies. The torn clothes, right? And everything else is what? Totally different. This man is a careless man. He doesn't care about anything. And even though he pretends he's ignorant, he's perfectly knowledgeable, cold-blooded, calculating, and there is no contradiction in terms. He is, in fact, all of the above. He's a careless, cold-blooded killer who's in it to get what? gain, hoping for some kind of reward. Does that make sense to everybody? And his actions of mourning tell everything from the very beginning. Are you with me? Because all he has is just a little tear in his clothes, some dust on his head. But what does David and the rest of his friends do? They don't eat. They weep. They do it for a long period of time. They tear their clothes. And what does the man do this whole time while they're doing all these things? Nothing. Does that make sense? The contrast could not be any more clear. David understands the office. He understands Saul and his son, Jonathan. But he doesn't just mourn. They don't just mourn for them. They also mourn for who? Verse 12. Who else do they mourn for? The house of Israel. Why? Because when the king falls, it's not just a personal tragedy, it's a national treasure tragedy. I was going to say national treasure. National tragedy. Because the king is inherently connected with his people. See that? The king is inherently connected with his people. 
So David turns to the young man and he asks him one more time, where are you from? Why is David asking this? Does David, did David forget? No. He wants the man to acknowledge his what? Guilt. Are you telling me the truth? Right? Where are you from? And what does the man say? I am a what? Alien. Son of an alien. This word for alien means that this person lived in what? Okay, if you're a resident alien, that means you're a foreigner who what? Lives in the country, right? If, if somebody can't be like, uh, I'm a resident alien, but I don't live here, then you're not a resident alien. Does that make sense to everybody? You're just an alien, okay? Foreigner. If you're a resident foreigner, that means you live in the country. That means this person lives where? In Israel. That means he knows everything, right? You can't. What is David's question trying to pull out? What do you really know? What do you really know? What do you? What have you been instructed in? And the man says, "I'm an Amalekite. I'm the son of a resident alien." So he should know two things. Two things instantly. He should know what Israel, how Israel feels about its king. Does that make sense? He should know that theology, and he should also know that he's a what? an Amalekite, which means he's an enemy. And he has no right to do anything. Does that make sense to everybody? So once David hears that answer, verse 15, David becomes, in a sense, the judge. And he goes, how is it that you were not afraid to stretch your hand and destroy the Lord's what? Anointed. What's the word in Hebrew for anointed? Anyone know? Mashiach. The Lord's Messiah. And in verse 15 and following, David calls to one of the young men, young man versus young man, by the way, and says, go, approach this man and cut him down. The word for cut down is paga. It's a violent word. I mean, this isn't just like, ding, you know, and you're dead. Or this is like rip him to shreds kind of word. Does that make sense? Violent slaughter. Uh, Even David's words reflect wrath here. And so he cut him down, and, and the guy died. And David said, your blood is on your own head. Here is the irony. The man comes up to David and says, are you going to be just like me, careless, wanting to profiteer from Saul's death? Right? That's what the man is essentially asking. And David says, no, I'm all about what? Justice and the reverence for the office. Does that make sense? But in doing so, what does he have the right to do? What does David do? He kills the man, right? For his wrongdoing. So David, in effect, in effect, acts like the law court. Does that make sense? And do you see what the conclusion is? David, by refusing to become the lowercase k-i-n-g and following the capital k-i-n-g, he, in effect, becomes the what? The king. Do you see that? Providentially. By not becoming the king, he becomes the king. By not being the one who seizes the kingdom, he in fact becomes the judge and therefore becomes on his way to king. Does that make sense? Do you see how this reversal works? David did nothing wrong. He's the right man for the job. He loves the position of king. He is not as the careless Amalekite. He's not the enemy of Israel. He's the friend of Israel. Does this make sense to everybody? 
Okay. Good. In the last five minutes, wait, what time do we get out of here? 35. Okay, good. In the last like five minutes, talk to me about tell it not in gap. See, we made it. Oh, really nice. Five minutes. Talk to me about, right? You guys did this, right? Tell, talk to me about tell it not in gaff, and I'll make some introductory comments maybe, and then we'll call it a week and start next week on chapter two. Or no, chapter one, whatever we are in now. Yeah? Uh, just a quick question, because when I read about it in the commentary, they say it's alliterated in Hebrew. How does that sound? Alliterated in Hebrew, tell it not, oh. You mean the phrase, tell it not in gaff, right? Yeah. Uh, it's all tagidu begat. You hear the g g g, right? Al tagidu begat, and that's why you know. Um, yeah. So there's a word. There's a yeah alliteration there going on. It's not at the front of the word, but it's in where the accents are. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah good question. Where'd you? What what commentary did you read? I Yeah, 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 yeah. So, was she helpful? Well, he, uh, she covered the basics about like a what, what it is, and then she also said about like uh, it became proverbial, as you could see in the. It was, they also use it in the Micah one ten. Right, right, right. But then, other than that, she didn't really go into the like, further details right. about like uh, how this like uh, really helps. Good. Okay, that's good. Anyone have anything beyond that? Yeah. Um, I found the commentaries on Samuel to be of no help, but most of them that uh, were like 110 had a lot to say about it. Hmm. So, Anderson, Rocky. What did, uh, what did they say for Micah 110? Right. Mm hmm. Do they give any conclusion? None of them. That's that's Except wonderful. Walkie, what did Walkie say? Right, right, right. Yep. And that's all the Milwaukee said? That's not helpful. But any other comments? Any other things? Did you all basically see the same thing? It's like, yeah, just not much, right? It's okay. It's not like you're in sin or something for not finding too much, hunting it down. But yes, do not tell it in Gath is in one sense, and we have to define this, a proverbial saying. It's defined here and then picked up later in Micah. All right? But let me tell you, in essence, what the connection will do to this. This is ancient poetry, what we're about to read. All right? David has already showed by action that he reveres the office. But now, in this ancient poem that he is going to teach Israel to sing for a long, long time. That's why, by the way, they say in Micah, tell it not in Gath, because it comes from the song, the hit, 
the national best-selling song written by David, Tell It Not in Gath. I mean, okay, that's not the real song name, but you get what I'm talking about. It's because everyone sang the thing. David understands the nature of what it means for Israel to lose its king. David understands what it means when the king is lost. He writes a song about it to tell you the theology. And guess what happens in Micah? They sing the song. Why? Because they've lost their... <clears throat> they lost their... Yeah. They didn't lose Saul, but they, they lost their king. And uh, guess what's in... in, in uh, here, easy, Christmas. Micah what? Five. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Do you see why that's so important now? Tell it not in Gath. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Or the king, the future king. Hi. The future king is born in Bethlehem. Do you see why that's so important now? Because this is the song that says, do you know what it means for Israel to lose a king? Let me tell you the ancient prophetic words about it. And then Micah says, it's happened. Tell it not in Gath. More on this Tuesday. Mm-hmm.